You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Take one. Knock, knock. Stephen and Dana, and we're in the room. Wow, hi, Stephen. Hi, Dana. It's been a minute. <laughs> it's been so many minutes. I haven't seen you, and I've seen some people in my life. IRL, but I've not seen you <laughs> in six months. <laughs> in so many months, and we're no used wonder to you each look other. so rested. I know I look and glorious dewy. and radiant. Um, as do you. But our podcast has missed you, as you were unavailable <gasps> last time. With oh, that's Julian right, Julian Havard. Uh, yeah, I enjoyed listening to that episode so much. Just having nothing to do with it, you edited. You swung out. I swung out. I was like, I need a time out, Louise. And our friend Natalie Joy Johnson uh, swung in. Which, I mean, honestly, she should actually be the host, but, you know. <laughs> She'll be the host Forever. once. Um, I had to do that in the early days of this podcast. I could not join you, and you had to do an episode all by yourself. You didn't even have a guest. No, I remember I had like my microphone. I'm like, ooh, am I? I don't know. Like, you monologued. Mark Marin. Like, I was just talking for, I don't know, 45 minutes. And it was like 8 a.m. I was lit. I had my iced coffee. Turn me on. Anyway, speaking was, of lit. <laughs> we, okay, so we're trying to do in these times of quarantine where we cannot be in person. Um, see, like people in our world who might not be in New York anyway, right? Right. So we've well, dabbled in the put, LA. Let's world. get the most out of the technology. <laughs> let's right. not Skype with the gal next door. No, we'll see her later. Let's get some miles. Let's get some mile points so we can upgrade. Our guest today um, is the lovely Jamie Babbitt, <laughs> who is joining us. From Los Angeles, California, but more specifically, like, you're more out in the boonies. I am doing this podcast from Topanga, Ca Topanga Canyon, California, which is about uh, 40 minutes outside of Los Angeles. It is a beautiful state park 
Uh, it is a home that overlooks many thousands of acres of kindling, which could at any moment light on fire. <sighs> we laugh because or else we'll cry. I don't know. Very true. I was uh, born and raised in Thousand Oaks, so very familiar with, um, I associate Topanga Canyon with the Topanga Mall, because back in the 90s, the Oaks wouldn't cut it. You had to go to Topanga for the uh, the quality shopping. Love it, love it. Yes, Topanga Canyon has been a beautiful getaway during COVID because there's very few people here. We can walk around, we can see a bobcat, we can uh, have raccoons wake us up every night. Um, but yeah, it's been great and it's really beautiful. I'm just hoping, it, we're right in fire season right now, so uh, every day we're, we have our bags packed and we're ready to run. But it's still idyllic. It's very idyllic, <laughs> And you have yeah. dogs and an outdoor uh, hot tub? Oh, yeah. Hot tub overlooking the mountains. We have three giant dogs. Uh, We have, um, it's been beautiful. It's been really nice. But I actually am on my way to New York uh, in a couple weeks to direct um, a Steve Martin, Martin Short, Selena Gomez uh, series for Hulu, uh, Murder Mystery. Come on now. Is it called Murder Mystery? It is called Only Murders in the Building, and it is a rear window-esque story about these three characters, Steve Martin, Martin Short, and Selena Gomez, who live in a building on the Upper West Side, and they start a podcast, and they investigate murders. (laughs) Well, if you need any tips, tips and tricks. um, Are you, so is this a series, and you are directing the first the pilot or are you directing the whole series this is a series and i'm going to direct four out of the six episodes um so dope so yeah so it'll be really fun so i'll direct the pilot and then three more and then i will just be in new york uh making sure everything goes smoothly which i'm sure directing in covid with some older actors and a young actress with lupus it's yeah. gonna be a big adventure and really fun and very important that I keep very safe yeah I'm, I mean I'm I'm gonna be so curious after this process like all the hurdles you had to jump through but gearing up yeah I mean well, both of those like... both of those national treasures live in LA right so there's flying involved. I think Selena also lives out there. So y'all are coming to New York. And then what's in place that you need to keep in mind filming during COVID? You know, I am going to learn so much. I think the biggest challenge is going to be group scenes where I have extras in a room. So for example, there's a scene in the script where Selena, Steve Martin, and Martin Short all go into a diner, and it's packed. And they sit in a corner booth, and they have a big six-page conversation. I don't know how I put those three national treasures in a restaurant, which is inside, Mm -hmm. um, with 40 extras Mm -hmm. without masks on, even with masks on. 
So I think it's going to be visual effects. I'm assuming I'll shoot the extras first, maybe with masks, and then take out their masks and visual effects, and then put the actors without any um, extras, without masks. So I don't know. It's it's going to be a new adventure in visual effects. It's going to wow, be really yeah. challenging. Yeah. But I think the the there was also another scene I was reading last night where they're having a group uh, like building meeting in the lobby of their building, and because a murder has happened and everyone's freaked out, and so it's everyone from the building. So that's like hundreds of people. I don't know how to put the actors with other actors. So we have to get tested three times a week. Um, I have to be in a little bubble, and I'm going to live in Westchester, which is crazy because I've never been to Westchester. I've never wanted to go to Westchester. <laughs> sure. Um, but I just feel like even going into an elevator in my building in New York, I can't do that because I can't risk uh, mm -hmm. harming these three national treasures. So yeah. I'm going to be really careful. I mean, to be a director, you need to love puzzles. Yeah. Sounds like. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, we didn't mention at the top. I mean, I'm sure you've already read the description in this podcast episode, but Jamie Babbitt, my God, your resume. Do you mind if I just read from your IMDb? Listen. Okay. So she's directed movies, television. I don't even know where to begin. I mean, let's start from the most recent. You, and we'll swing back around, The League of Their Own reboot? Remake? Not reboot. It's a remake. Well, it, it doesn't really have anything to do. Re-envisioning. Yeah, because it's about the uh, African-American team players and the queer team players. Thank you. So no one that was ever brought up in the original film. Uh, but very much existed in the real world. So we're finally going to tell their stories. So I think it's a re-envisioning because it's totally different characters. Mm -hmm. Same story, but let's put some more stuff in there. Um, Aquafina is Nora from Queens. The First Wives Club TV show. Hello. Russian Doll that we love. We stan. Um, oh. The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Uh, Silicon Valley, which... I don't know. You were also an EP on that, an executive producer. Yeah, so I worked Silicon on Valley. Silicon Valley for a couple of years, and I directed, uh, I don't know, a lot of episodes. And um, that was super fun with all those weirdo, queerdo uh, comedians. <laughs> and Jamie Babbitt. To have been a fly on that wall. Well, wait, I'm not done. Okay, so Santa Clarita Diet. Uh, the Orville, Brooklyn Nine Nine, Hello, Girls, Girl Boss. It's always funny. In, it's always sunny in Philadelphia. It's Divorce. always funny. It's always funny in Philadelphia. Um, Supergirl, looking, drop dead diva, Rizzoli and Isles. Come on, like literally any TV show that's ever been made. United States of Terra, Smash, Bunheads. Pretty Little Liars? Okay, Cougar Town. I'm sorry. That is one of my favorite shows of all time. I think that was wildly underrated. Um, let's see. Like, in The Motherhood, you know, Cheryl Hines and Megan Mullally. I mean, <laughs> truly, in the vision board of this podcast, there's really just like, a, a, we didn't know it at the time, but there's like a Jamie Babbitt quadrant of... Um, of texture, of, of niche-ness. No, but obviously you, um, 
you've you can see who you have worked with a lot. There's kind of a through line of your peeps, right? And you started, you guys, this is going back to 1999, but you came up with the idea and directed, but I'm a cheerleader, which is LGBTQ canon. It is a cult movie that I watched, fun fact, at this little resort that we happened to have gone to very separately but Quisasana I watched but I'm a cheerleader in my cabin for the first time little lesbian little did I know that I would meet Jamie Babbitt another Quisasana alum who directed that film I can't I can't ooh ooh I have so many thoughts, so many <laughs> things to say, but like you I'm are dying. like like a, a lesbian director, producer, writer, um, baller, I guess is the term, right? Did you have? Did you just come out guns a blazing? Like I want to produce, direct queer stories. Yes, I did. I didn't but really like, know what that meant. Like, I didn't understand the film business or TV business, or I didn't really know what that was. But I was, like, a theater kid in Ohio, and I knew I wanted to get the hell out of Ohio. And my first stop was Quisasana, this Dirty Dancing-esque resort uh, that I think I was the youngest person to ever be allowed to work there. I was 16. (laughs) Um, But I went in the summer of my junior year, sophomore year of high school, I'm not sure, um, to get the hell out of Ohio. That was my first stop. And I realized I was a little queerdo at Quisasana. So I We all do. So blessed <laughs> that many years later, Dana, you were there discovering your queerdoness, watching But I'm a cheerleader, my um, secretion of queerdoness. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so I went, and when I was 16, I went to Quisasana, and then, which is in Maine, and then I came back to Ohio, and I was like, oh, I met all these girls that went to Barnard College at Quisasana, and they were all lesbians, and that seems like a really good place for me to go <laughs> and find my lesbianism, and I get to live in New York City. So when I was 18, I went to Barnard and I uh, was surrounded by really fierce, intelligent women. And the first thing I did was go to the Columbia Career Services and say, hey, I want to do an internship uh, in some entertainment field. I don't really know anything about it. Um, And they said, okay, there's an internship for, I think it was Days of Our Lives or Bold and the Beautiful or one of those terrible soap operas yeah um or you could be an intern for the producer of dead poet society and i was like oh i want to work with that producer and so i worked with him for three years like twice a week uh in college and learned everything about the film business and one of the first things i learned was i did not want to be in an office my whole life and that I wanted to be a director. It seemed like the best job. And so my senior year of college, I applied for, and this is the great thing about Columbia, they have a great career services like uh, mm. setup. 
So I got an internship with Martin Scorsese my senior year. Um, so I worked one day a week in I'll his office. I'll have to Google him. Hold on. Yeah. <laughs> Can you spell Scorsese? <laughs> Can you spell Martin uh, very quickly? Marty. That's, That's Marty. Marty. Insane. Scorsese. Is he adorable? He's like a tiny little man, very short, uh, very sweet, only child. Um, and so I learned in my internship a couple of very bizarre things which have been kind of the focal point of my understanding of life as a director, which I learned very young. Number one, he had me hang out with his parents because he never spent any time with them. And he felt so guilty that I would go over there, they would make pasta for me and make me stay and chat with me forever because they were they miss their son because he always works and he has no time for them. You were a surrogate Scorsese. You were the bridge. So I remember going over there and his mom had knit booties for Steven Spielberg's baby and I had to go pick them up. But really I could tell he just sent me there because he felt so guilty he never spent time with them. And they lived in Little Italy, exactly what you would think. Like his mom was like making pasta sauce. Um, so sweet. So that was, I realized, okay, directors have no time with for their families. And then he also had Sign me. me. <laughs> yeah, I love it. He also... Um, was very organized with his like shot plans and everything so I would go through he had these books from like Raging Bull that had his little football maps of like where he was going to put the camera and it was just like I realized he seems like he's just this brilliant I mean and he is this brilliant artist but really he just does a lot of preparation and Mm -hmm. so that was really helpful to see like the kind of process behind the man and he had a big film collection, um, loved movies. So I was like, fuck, I got to watch a lot of movies. And he uh, also would have me send presents to his girlfriend, um, who was Ileana Douglas at the time. She we was stand. I love it. Love. And so I would send her books to the hotel she was living in. So I instantly knew what his like weird reading list was of like trying to – get a girl yeah <laughs> uh and i remember i sent <laughs> oh Zorba the greek i don't know if you guys have read that but that was one of the books i sent to her uh which i had actually read so i was like wow i'm like i'm i'm on the pulse come on what a gift and yeah, you're so fun. smart to like absorb all of that stuff yeah well it was also i had to get the food for his trailer which was peanut butter and jelly which i thought was so weird that he ate like a sixth grader but it's funny because uh, anyone can attest that works with me. The one thing I asked my assistant to do is put peanut butter and jelly in my trailer because you can eat it <laughs> while you're directing and you just don't have time to like sit down. It's the best. Yeah. Food and or snack. <laughs> yes. It's true. I also had to get him boxes of natural laxatives. You got to keep regular. <laughs> Which I think it's because you eat so much peanut butter and jelly and there's just no time for vegetables or salad. So it's just, you know, shit, shit doesn't happen, I guess is what we're saying. Dana's like, what brand? Yeah, I'm so into that conversation. They Let's... were from a health food store. I remember that. But it was like I had to get bottles and bottles and bottles. So, yeah. Good. Well, at least he's taking care of himself. Exactly. Hi-ho yeah. a glamorous life. I know, guys. It was an interesting portal into life as a director. Like, it was like, you're going to eat like shit. 
you're never going to shit. You're going to go through multiple marriages, even though you're a very nice person. Because um, his wife was his ex-wife. And I found that out the first day. Like, they were like, oh, they were married at the beginning of the movie, but now they're not married, but they're still working together. And I ended up marrying a producer a couple of years later who produced But I'm a Cheerleader, who I had two kids with. Um, and we still work together sometimes, and she's wonderful. She's a great producer, but just like Scorsese, we are not married anymore. <laughs> that sounds like the best scenario, though, that you can be professionally collaborative and also, like, mommy collaborative. Exactly. Come on. Yeah, no, she's so talented. So, um, so yeah, I learned a lot from that internship. And then, basically, after working with Scorsese, I was like, the one way to make it as a director is to make indie films and then the studio system mm -hmm. or TV or whoever has to accept you. Like you're undeniable if you make a movie. And I was like, the only way it seems like you can make a successful movie is if you go inside and make it as personal as possible. And that was definitely a Scorsese lesson. Like, And so... I was like, well, what do I know about? I was like, well, I know about being a little gay and I know about being a little femme and I know about rehab because my mom ran a rehab when I was growing up. So I basically grew up in a rehab. So I was like, ooh, maybe I'll put all those things together and make a little queer femme movie about a girl who's in rehab. But I'll make a gay rehab instead of drug rehab because my mom's rehab was a um, teen drug rehab. Wow. So I was like, I guess I need to find money and I need to learn more about directing. So I took some summer classes at NYU and I made some short films that were terrible. And they will be released, actually, for the first time. They're doing a 20-year uh, release of But I'm a Cheerleader um, this December in time for Christmas. Um, and they put a bunch of extras on it, and one of the extras they put on was my first short film that I made, which is so bad. But I was like, you know what, I think it would be really fun to put as a DVD extra or content extra, um, because I think it's good for people to see you can make terrible films and then continue and you'll get better. Well, that's, I mean, it's also the expectation. You're supposed to. Yeah, exactly. You don't come out a star right out the <laughs> gate you gotta have those rough drafts and like yeah. anything plus time equals comedy right oh yeah and my first short film was I cast <laughs> my brother and it was a short film starring my best friend who uh, is walking in the streets of New York on West 4th Street and some guy is harassing her and she pulls her tampon out and she throws it at him and it hits him in the face and she's victorious and it's called Discharge. It's a comedy. <laughs> so my brother got a bunch of tampons dipped in ketchup, thrown at his face over and over again, which made me very happy. I was so happy directing that. So Is that was the beginning actor? of it all. No, he was just my brother, and I knew he would, he kind of looked like Anthony Kiedis at the time, and I, you know, I could see that guy harassing a woman on the streets, and sure. I also knew I could abuse him and film it, and he would accept it, so. Yeah. <laughs> Man, I mean, just thinking about what it takes to be a director, I mean, it's creative, it's organization, it's money, 
like so many hurdles are in your way. I assume when you're first starting out, like it, it can seem like one of those unattainable goals, un- those unattainable jobs or careers, which um, it's a lot of hard work, I imagine. Yeah, I think it was helpful to work for a director really early just to see, oh, this is just a regular person. Like, how did he do it? That made it feel more doable. And Mm -hmm. I think also for me, I, at the time it was the nineties. And so I was really into like riot girl music and punk rock and all those riot girl musicians like Kathleen Hanna and uh, the girls from Slater Kenny, they were terrible musicians, but they just played anyway. And they were like, fuck you. I'm terrible. I don't give a fuck. I'm a woman. Deal with it. It's amazing. So I just this like, is what's inside me. <laughs> yeah, so I was like, okay, well, why can't I do that for film? Like, I don't need permission from these guys. I'll just do it and fuck them. Like, I'll just do it. And I think that was really helpful that that was, like, the ethos of the time. And I, mm-hmm. I was really anti-studio mm-hmm. movies at that time because I felt like the only way to feel that I could get through was to just care about those weird indie movies where it was a lot of women and people of color and like different types were getting into Sundance they weren't getting into the studio system but I was like fuck the studio system I'm gonna make whatever the fuck I want (laughs) and you did and my god it's so cool it's such a mash but I'm a cheerleader if you haven't seen it um it's probably because you're not gay. I don't know what the reason is, but like Melanie Linsky, is that one of her first films? It was I maybe one of her first American films. She had been in Heavenly Creatures, which I saw, which Peter mm-hmm. Jackson directed, which was about like murderous lesbians. And it was Kate Winslet, who's so hot and her relationship with Melanie Linsky. And I saw that movie and I was like, oh God, I love both those actors. I want them for cheerleader. And I think Kate Winslet was like already a star right away. And um, I called Melanie's agent and she was like, oh, she lives in New Zealand. She doesn't have a place to stay in LA. And I was like, all right, well, let me ask the investment banker I got to give the money for the movie if she can stay at his house. And so we were like, doing all kinds of crazy stuff and then the investment banker was like well I thought Natasha was going to stay at my house so and I said well Melanie lives in New Zealand can we use your frequent flyer miles to fly her to LA he was like yeah sure that's fine so it was just like beg borrow and steal for that movie Um, we ended we started with a $500,000 budget which was uh, the guy who um, invested in it I met him at Sundance and he was the vice president of Prudential Insurance and he wanted to get into the movie business and I had a short I had made a short film with money that I had raised from working uh, in the film business on the crew I had just like saved a bunch of money and um, made a short film starring Clea Duvall who was a coffee barista Mm -hmm. that was really cute a cute little butch and she wanted to be an actor and I wanted to be a director so we made this short film called Sleeping Beauties and it went to Sundance, and when I was at Sundance, uh, I met this Prudential Insurance guy, and he came to see the short film, and he was like, oh, it's really good, and I said, yeah, and it's at Sundance, so next year, let's be at Sundance with another Clea Duvall project, and, but we'll have a feature, 
and wouldn't that be so cool? And he was like, yeah, and if you make a short, you get in, like, you get your movies in, right? And I was like, oh, of course, but of course, that's, like, not really true. Uh, yeah. But I was like, yeah, once they support you, you're definitely going to get in, so let's just go next year with our movie that you're going to finance. And he was like, oh, okay, um, how much do you need? And I said 500 because I thought that seemed like something an investment banker could give. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then once I started, like, putting the movie together, I was like, oh, shit, this is, like, no money. And am I really asking Natasha Leone to, like, change in my car? And it just seemed like we didn't have enough money. And so I said, hey, I'm so sorry, but we actually need to double the budget to a million dollars. But we were already kind of halfway through preparing for the film. And he said, okay, well, I'll give you a million dollars for the movie, but that's a lot more risk for me. So if I give you a million dollars to make the movie, then you can't have any of the profit participation. And I was like, that's fine. I just want a career. Like, I don't care. Um, so to this day, mm -hmm. I have never received one penny from but a mature leader. <laughs> Not one penny. I just got full body chills. Um... Beg, borrow, and steal. Yeah, wow. exactly. But, but I did get a career, so that was you that's what I wanted. Yeah, that's what I wanted. I just I feel like um, I'll give you twenty dollars, wow. whatever I <laughs> I rented it on Amazon again to. Uh, really? Wow. Yeah, I'll buy the DVD and then every time I watch it, I'll send you three ninety nine. <laughs> Thank crazy. you. I know. Well, I okay. actually went to Amoeba Records and I saw a bunch of copies of the DVD and I was like, oh, I don't have a copy of this. And so I bought a bunch and I remember I was so embarrassed because I had to hand them my credit card, which had my name on it. <laughs> but well, listen, guys, this is the life of an indie filmmaker. There is something about you that is so like optimistic and fucking fearless, just and networky, and I, I don't know. There's something so inspiring about how you did that and continue to do that and advocate for yourself and ask those questions right like because those things may not come easy to someone else but if you're in this business you have to do those things and ask for more money and you know meet the people yeah I yeah. feel like I got really lucky because my mom uh was very entrepreneurial in her thinking and so she never worked for someone she always just started a job that she made for herself mm -hmm. and made herself like the head of it. So I just was raised to think like that. And she was very much a problem solver. So like she wanted to mm -hmm. have a, she wanted to be the head of a rehab. So she just raised money and started a rehab and made herself the president of it. So, um, right. I don't need to in my ask. head. It's like my girl and you're just like Anna Schlemsky running around being like, <laughs> Yeah, so my mom, and she work. was very uh, also, like, charismatic, and um, uh, she was a psychiatrist, so she was um, very nimble about thinking what do people want out of this exchange and knowing how to give it to them, and also mm -hmm. really calm under pressure, I think, because she dealt with a lot of people who had, like, killed someone and would, in therapy, be like, I killed someone, it's terrible, and my mom would be like, how do you feel? So I oh, just, man. I used to always think, oh, I'm so glad I didn't go into mental health because I just, it was very intense, my mom's job. And 
there was never a vacation and you know it was the holidays were always the worst like everyone right. calls their psychiatrist at the holidays because they're having a really hard time and my mom used to bring all of her patients to our houses for all the holidays because she really didn't have great boundaries so uh <laughs> christmas thanksgiving easter at, at my table were all her like teen rehab kids um so in high school i used to see like really fucked up druggies like i knew in a couple weeks they were going to be in rehab and i knew they were going to be at my christmas dinner wow what an interesting upbringing i mean there's another movie (laughs) yeah someday um so anyway i wanted to put all of that into but i'm a cheerleader and um so I made that movie, and then when I went to Sundance with it, I was like, oh, I really need an agent, because I think that's how people get paid jobs, because I obviously wasn't paid when I made Cheerleader. And no one wanted to be my agent. This is like how sexist and horrible the industry is. And I, the only agent I could get was the agent that represented Clea and Natasha, the two lead actors of the movie. And he was like, oh, my clients love you. They said they had such a great time on the movie. And I was like, cool, will you represent me? And he was like, well, I don't have any director clients, but sure, like my agency can rec- can, can um, advocate for you. And so they were my agents for like the first five years. And I think I was their only director client, which is so funny. That's right where you want to be. I know. And but people great. were like, wait, who represents you? I'm like innovative artists. They didn't have any directors. Um, and the first interview I said when I, uh, after Sundance, I was like, look, I just want to make money as a director. I don't want to like wait tables or babysit or all the things I had been doing up to that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was like, okay, well, there's this new TV show um and the creator is brand new he's never done tv but that's great because he doesn't care that you haven't done tv and his name's ryan murphy so you'll go in and meet with him and so i met with ryan and he's like i've never done tv i'm like i've never done tv i'm turning off this interview this is just it's lies all of it's lies (laughs) so we had a really nice interview like we just really bonded and he was like at the time dating Bill Condon. Um, I know Bill Condon. Who's such a cutie? Him. He's like he directed Beauty and the Beast, and oh, yes, he yes. directed um, what was that Brendan Fraser kind of monster movie? You know what I'm talking about? Brendan Fraser. He did Dreamgirls. He did. Um... I know the Brendan Fraser that you're... I can see the poster of it. Yeah. I can't. It was like a monster movie. It was like Bill, one of Bill Condon's first movies. He wrote and directed it. It was really great. Anyway, he was a lot older than Ryan, which was really cute. And um, he kind of looks like a math teacher. Such a cutie. <laughs> and they had basically just broken up. And I was a little queerdo. He was a little queerdo. Um, and we made this show popular and we learned about television and it was a little bit like a precursor to Glee just as far as the characters and like Shane Lynch was in it and a lot of uh, Leslie Grossman who then went on to American Horror Story a lot of kind of his first little posse of actors no Sarah Paulson he's creating his coven (laughs) yeah 
Um, but we yeah. Love. So he and he said, "Oh, uh, will you direct uh, an episode?" And I said, "Sure." And I think the network at the time said, "You can't hire this person. She's has no experience." And the thing I love about Ryan is that he was had never done TV either, but said, "Go fuck yourself. I like her, and we're hiring her." Yes. And he was doing that before he had any power. And so they were like, okay, she can direct an episode. And so after that episode, Ryan was like, I love you. You're amazing. Will you be the producer and the director for the whole series? And I was like, okay. Oh, me? <laughs> so I had all these like 50 something directors who had been around the block who were like, she's our boss. Uh, I wasn't 30. Yeah, bitch. Yeah. So that was pretty funny. Um, but I felt perfectly entitled to be their boss. I was like, of course. I, I totally get the, the vision. I get Ryan's writing. I get what this show is. And I was closest in age to the actors because I was yeah. in my 20s. Mm. To, to think back on being able to understand Ryan Murphy's tone, now we know what that tone is because it's so many years later and he has that you right. know that through line but of, back in the day that was back in the day knowledge. it's new so i'm i'm so curious how you establish the same mindset and i guess how does that even happen how do you establish I, I that just, tone i mean i just understood him like we both had a we were just little queerdos who had the same aesthetic and like theater theater kids he's from the midwest he's from indiana i'm from yeah, ohio i think like if you're little theater kids there's some kind of like weirdness that you just kind of get yeah and also being from the midwest being like get me the fuck out of that um yeah. ryan was funny too because he was he t he told me when he was growing up he always wanted to be the pope because he was okay. he was raised Catholic, and he was like, "Oh, well, it's like really theatrical, and the leader of the Catholics is the Pope, and I get to wear that really cool outfit, sure, and yeah. lots of cute boys." Um, and I do. He's kind of become the Pope in a weird way, in a better way, in my opinion. Yeah, um, same of a lot of gay content. So um, yeah, so when he was at the time, the CW was like, can we have more storylines with the straight characters? And like, of course, all he wanted to do was make it as gay as possible. Yeah. And that's all I wanted to do too. So, um, so yeah, we just, we, we had a great time. And then that was two years on that show. And then what was great is that I had done, but I'm a cheerleader. And then I did like 10 episodes or something of popular. So all of a sudden I had a resume as a TV director, which was unheard mm -hmm. of to be like 29 and have done that much. And so then I was able to get a lot of other TV work. And I basically just kind of went in between weird indie movies and uh, directing TV for money. So that was sort of the balance that I did. So I ended up directing like four other indie movies that were all made for under a million dollars. Um, and I would never make any money on those, but then I would make money directing like Brazilian Isles or Gilmore Girls or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and then I would pull all the actors and the crew and uh, the people that I met on the TV stuff and make them work on my indie stuff for free. <laughs> Listen, you're no dum-dum. Um, so Amy Sherman Palladino, 
Is she Love. tribe? I mean, honest, like, obviously you've worked with her on multiple shows. Yeah, Bun so I, I directed Bunhead, 18 I episodes of Gilmore Girls. So that was... Legendary. Six that years. is red legendary. Yeah, so I did six years on Gilmore Girls. I did three episodes a year. Um, and then I worked on Bunheads, and then I did Maisel. And Amazing. she is tribe. She's so brilliant. And I remember... She was like the second person I met after Ryan Murphy. And <laughs> this is dumb. So crazy. I know. And she was also like very young and she had won an Emmy as a writer on Roseanne. They had hired her to be the, I think she was hired when she was like 20 to write for Sarah Gilbert's character. Wow, 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 wow. And she won an Emmy for it. And so Gilmore Girls was her first show by herself. And she was such a brilliant writer. And the show was a huge hit, but it was on this crappy network. And she was just like Ryan. Like, people would say, you can't do that. And she'd be like, go fuck yourself. I'm going to do it. Like, she was so balls out. Like, did not give up. And do it. No, but that's do the takeaway. The takeaway of this episode is you don't need anyone's permission to do what you want to do, crappy or not. Do it. Yeah. Fuck your and, permission and slip. She, yeah, she had no permission slip. She was fired from her own show the last season. She was like, I want this, I want that, I want this. And they were like, oh, hell no. And she was like, fine, fuck you. And they were like, okay, bye. <laughs> so she didn't even work on the last episode or the last season, which Jeez. is why she ended up doing right. the movie version of it on Netflix because she was like, I never got to do the last episodes that I wanted to do to wrap up the series because they fired me off my own show. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, she was always willing to get fired to, to fight for what she wanted, and she just was made that way. Um, but she was so brilliant, and she never got any Emmy noms for writing, and she was always like, why is that, Jamie? And I was like, you know what, Amy? It's fucking sexism. Like, we're on a shitty network, mm -hmm. and you're a woman writing brilliantly for women. And it's just the people in the Academy, they're all, like, 70-year-old men. They've never heard of Gilmore right. Girls. They, they, didn't, watch they didn't watch it. the screener. Right. Yeah. They don't watch the screener. Um, my dad has a question. He is the world's biggest Gilmore Girls fan. Oh, that's I know so that cute. sounds like a joke, but it's oh. it's actually not. Um, so Wayne Craig has a question, which is because they speak so quickly and the dialogue is so snappy and musical. Was that an issue during directing, or was it nightmare directing? Oh, no, it was a nightmare. nightmare. It was so hard. Great. So it was also from the very beginning, Amy said, so I came in, in the first season, they had 22 directors and not a single director was asked back for second season. So I went to interview and I said to the producer, this guy, Gavin Pallone, who also produced Curb Your Enthusiasm, I said, hey, um, can you tell me why n not one director from last season has been brought back? And he said, I'm going to tell you it's very simple, but most people don't believe me when I say this. You have to get two takes from top to bottom of the scene, the master. It has to be a moving master, which means move the camera with the steady cam for six pages. And it has to be word perfect. And you have to do two takes of it where it's word perfect and it's really fast. And Amy's big like um inspiration for her writing is dorothy parker okay and she yeah. loves that musicality she loves that pitter-pat mm. she loves that theatricality 
she would be running the Algonquin circle if she could. Um, and that is her vision for the show. So word perfect, two takes. And she doesn't care if you do 100 takes. She will protect you. You need two of them to be word perfect. And that means an and, a the, a but. Um, so the actors were furious. And the fact that they would have to do a scene 30 times, and if one actor forgot an and, we would have to do it again. And many times, I would shoot one scene for hours and hours and get like 40 takes, and I'd have all the producers and all the money people and network people behind me, like, you can't, you, you have to move on. And I'm like, if I move on, I will never be hired again. So I will not move right. on. I right. will literally be here until yeah. the sun rises, until I get this word perfect. And I, I get was going to say, how nice to like know that going in, knowing like that's the expectation. It was awesome. Now you know what you need to achieve. Now you yeah. know what your job is. Yeah, and it was so it's fun. so clear. And it was so clear. And I love Amy because I remember one time I was like on take 37 and the Steadicam guy was like dripping in sweat and he had literally been like taken off the set once because he had like a heart attack. Like the Steadicam is so heavy. And so I was on like take 36. It was a meal penalty. It was so expensive. We were going into lunch. And the AD came over and he said, Amy's on the phone for you. And I was like, okay. And I usually that's the showrunner saying, hey, you're going way over budget. This is a nightmare. You can't do that. And she went, do you have a bunch of producers behind you right now? I said, yeah, I do. And she said, I don't care what they do. You make sure that you get what I want. And I was like, of course. <laughs> so she just always protected me. <gasps> that's also terrifying terrifying but i always knew i had she had my back so i didn't yeah. care and the yeah. actors were so mad furious rebelling so mean sometimes because they were so frustrated but i just was like very nice it really was where my mom's like skills as a therapist came in where i would just be like i understand it's really hard okay but let's we're gonna do it again <laughs> and they'd be like fuck you ah! <laughs> you'd be like listen I know, me too. Me too. Okay, let's get back to one, back to one. So. Listen, if you want to be an iconic TV show, <laughs> do what I say. Yeah, meanwhile, it was like CW. We never got any awards. We went way over budget. Like, it was crazy. But Amy was like, she didn't care that the culture hadn't caught up to her yet. She wanted to be excellent in her right. little world. And that was so cool to me. And I was on her train. So I was like, you're brilliant. The world doesn't know it yet, but I don't give a fuck. You're like doing something really special and I appreciate yeah. you and I will be really? here for you a thousand percent. Well, you were on the cusp of the golden age of television. Yeah. You were just kind of meeting the people who were going to be the names of golden age of television. Yeah. And we were all treated like shit. Like we were, I got, even but I'm a cheerleader, like I got an F in Entertainment Weekly. I like got the magazine. I was so excited to see my review and it was an F. I've literally never seen an F in Entertainment Weekly. Um, F and for then, fabulous. Exactly. <laughs> and then Ryan, like popular, got horrible reviews too. And they were so mean to us. And they were like, can you make it less gay? I mean, literally they would say that. 
and Amy, they were like, you're going way over budget. This is ridiculous. We never got any awards. Like, so I just felt like we were in this weird little queerdo tribe and we were like, we're just gonna, you know, do our little thing and fuck everybody. So, and then the culture caught up. So good for us. Good for you. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, thank you. Yeah. I've enjoyed your work, unbeknownst to me. <laughs> I have a weird question about your your taste. Um, I, I want to know, you know, pre-deciding that you wanted to direct, like, what what were your movies, what were your TV shows, and then once you kind of shifted into director mode, how did that uh, inform the evolvement of your taste and your preference and your style? Well, early on, I wasn't allowed to watch TV, so I feel like it was this forbidden fruit that I then was really excited to make TV because it was this very foreign thing. Um, But my mom was very anti-television, and she, I wasn't allowed to watch it in her presence. So my mom got home from work at 6 o'clock, so I never watched, like, anything in prime time. Mm -hmm. So I would go after school. I was like a latchkey kid. And so I would open my door and go in immediately watch TV. And it was all reruns. So I watched like Get Smart and uh, Hollywood Squares and whatever was on like right after school. Totally. Card Sharks. (laughs) Literally. (laughs) It was like the Big Valley. Paul Lynn. The weirdest. Yeah. The weirdest shit from like not my era, but it was reruns. Yeah. And I never got to watch anything. Like, I've never seen an episode of Friends. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and say that's okay. Yeah. It just Having made me dabbled. a weirdo. Yeah, it made me a weirdo. Right. So, and then when I got to New York and I was in college, I was just really into, like, Riot Girl music. So it was that just, like, make art and fuck it if you're terrible. It's just important that you make stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, yeah, so that was kind of my, and then also my parents were civil rights activists, so that's how they met, and they were really involved in, like, um, Black Lives Matter back in the day, Mm. and so I was wildly liberal growing up, and my mom's circle was wildly liberal, so I always wanted to do something political, like, I would go to, uh, anti like protesting uh anti-abortion people um in high school with my mom and we just did a lot of like political shit growing up and it was just a fabric of our family and my parents moved to an all-black neighborhood which was funny because at the time they were trying to reverse white flight so they were like we're gonna move to an all-black neighborhood and we're gonna help it stay integrated meanwhile that's like now not something that anyone cares about because now it's gentrification but Mm. at the time it was um white flight was a really big issue in a lot of the black midwestern cities Mm. um like cleveland where i grew up so i always had a deeply political thing like running through my veins and also just being an upstart so and my mom hated Reagan and hated Bush and like would constantly be like screaming like in her mind Reagan was as terrible as Trump um, because she worked in mental health so before Reagan uh, my mom ran a psychiatric hospital and then when Reagan defunded mental health 
they literally said homeless people who have no money who are paranoid schizophrenics or um, bipolar or whatever that we, the government shouldn't pay for it. And so my mom, the ward of my mom's mental health facility, which was for poor people, they literally just emptied it out and put them on the streets. So my mom was very aware of how fucked up it was, which we all live with now. Like you walk down the street and you see paranoid mm -hmm. schizophrenics and you're like, why yeah. are they living on the street? And in my mom's day, the government used to pay to, to take care of them. So anyway, I just grew up with those like fire starters. And so I always knew I wanted to do really deeply political stuff. But I also was like, I'm a lesbian and I don't want to be poor my whole life. And so I want to make money. So TV was a way to do that. And, um, and then I tried to push it as far as I could in the TV world and surround myself with like the weirdos in the TV world who are like trying to push the envelope forward. Like they yeah. have something to say. It's not just a paycheck, right? And like yeah. it's Yeah. I mean I did work on some really sexist shows with some really awful like male creators. I remember I had I worked on Malcolm in the Middle and the script there was a line where a character said, Women are the cows of people because they uh, breastfeed. It was so awful. And I was like, as a feminist, I am so appalled by this line. I cannot believe I have to direct someone to say this. So there were definitely moments where I was like, I fucking hate TV. But then I would mm -hmm. make my like weird movie and feel so much better. So I always was like going back and forth. Is that mm. your bread and butter? If you could just make independent films of forever? Yeah. Is that, yeah. I mean, I would love to make independent films with big budgets. Like, that would be the best thing. Um, but I've never been able to get a lot of money for the content that I want to make. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is fine. Do you um, have stuff just ready to go? Just, like, in the frying pan? I always have weird stuff I would love to do. Yeah, sure. Um, but uh, how that's going to come about, I don't know. But I will say the nice thing about TV is that it's kind of gotten better and better and better and better so that I've been less tempted by the indie world because I feel like I've gotten to do some really cool, weird stuff. Like The League of Their mm -hmm. Own, I would totally have done that on my own mm -hmm. um, because I'm obsessed with queer culture back in the day. Like the butch femme thing, the how closeted they were, the lavender yeah. marriages, like gay men married lesbians and how they had a pact that they could both do their thing. And I come from a long line of lesbians in my family. So my grandmother's sister, my great grandmother's sister. Wow. Uh, my cousins, my aunt. There's so many lesbians in my Midwestern Kansas family. It's insane. And none of them got married. They all were out to their families. So I've always just been obsessed with like the women before me. And they were all femmes, which is also really weird. Isn't that crazy? Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yes. So I don't even want to know the odds. <laughs> <laughs> like are all of our gay relatives, like I remember I think about that for like if someone's like a hardcore top or a hardcore bottom, like going back in their lineage is it th is that genetic is that like consistent i know it's so weird but it's um so funny. but yeah so i the league of their own was so fun because i got to hang out with this 90 year old woman 94 year old woman 
who was telling me about gay bars in Santa Monica in the 40s. How cool is that? And how they dealt with the police raids. They were all connected to the mob. They would get a tip off because there was a crooked cop that was involved with the mob that owned the gay bars that would say, okay, the police are coming to raid it. And then all the women from the baseball, professional baseball league, they were like all lesbians and they were all at the gay bars and they would go to the bathroom and they always had windows in the bathroom so that they could jump out the windows, <gasps> get onto the roof. Like and go sister and, act. Yes. <laughs> it was so cool. So oh like being able to film stories like that, I was so excited. I am so excited for you and I'm so excited for that. I can't I, wait. So many people are dying for that to come out. They're so excited. Yeah. So, and I got, instead of like an indie movie where it was always like $100,000 to make this weird queer thing, which of course I'm so into, um, I got like $13 million to make the league pilot. So it was like 40 minutes, 50 minutes uh, episode, and I got so much money so I could actually do everything I thought of in my head, I could actually put on screen, which was so fun. Wow. What a gift. I mean, who's in that? There's so many people. So, Darcy Carden. We love. That's a good place. Dale Dickey. Uh, um, Abby Jacobson. Roberta, uh, Roberta from Vita, the like cute little lesbian on Vita, and she was also in that Broadway lesbian show, the yes. musical. That Broadway um, lesbian show, the musical. You know what I'm talking Wait, about. Wait, which fun one? Home. Fun home, fun home, fun home. Um, oh, Kate Berlant, yeah. I live. Come on, so funny. Um, yeah, so it was a lot of fun, fun ladies, fun queer ladies. Such, you think about. I think I've said this before on this podcast, even you think about the the kinds of sets that if you could just spend a day on and like watch it happen, um, what would those sets be? And certainly a league of their own um, it does <laughs> any that iteration, for me, you know, it ticks every box of I want to see how the sausage gets made. Well, if you want to talk to an extra on A League of Their Own, my girlfriend, Hillary Levitt, was an extra, so she was there. Ah. Hillary Levitt and I watched A League of Their Own, Equisasana, as well. Um, wow. I can't wait to see that! Ah! Oh, that's so funny. That's amazing. It'll be like, where's Waldo? <laughs> yeah. um, what was I going to say? Oh, Russian Doll. Yeah. Another Natasha Leone vehicle. Um, you directed a handful of episodes. And that's a set I do know a lot about. I heard <laughs> nothing but um, incredible things from Elizabeth Ashley um, about that set. She loved going to work every day, and she doesn't love going to work every day. <laughs> True. <laughs> True story. She loved that set. She loved every person that touched it. She loved all those women. That That's it was a female-centric cast and crew. That there was no man to answer to. And I mean, I think the Russian doll felt. was Her whole career. Yeah, Russian doll was a real tribute to Natasha's charisma. She's such a charismatic human, so mm -hmm. smart, 
so giving, so such an original. Like she's just mm. an original human being. And when I worked with her on But I'm a Cheerleader, I was so struck by what a intellectual force she is, and um, what a funny another queerdo. You know, she's mm -hmm. she lives uh, her life romantically with a man, but she is a true queerdo, true queerdo. And she, I was so excited to work with her 20 years after Cheerleader, and I said to her, you came into my story and my imagination with But I'm a Cheerleader, you played me, and we could not be more different. We're very, very different. She's very butch, even though she lives a straight life. Um, and she played this super femme in But I'm a Cheerleader, and then 20 years later, she wrote a show where she, mm. it was her mind and her world, and she let me direct her mind, which was so cool. It was such a wonderful dance of like creative exchange. Um, and that was just such a, a amazing thing to crawl into her brain and direct her imagination. Um, and she's so brilliant in that part and it's so her and the story of Russian Doll is very much her kind of descent into addiction and the sort of leitmotif of her dying over and over and over again in the series is really her waking up and doing drugs and crack. And I mean, she's talked about this before. Mm -hmm. um, and why do you want to kill yourself every day that you wake up as an addict? You do the same thing over and over again. You're just trying to kill yourself and how you escape addiction through connection and getting honest with yourself. And I had seen that as her friend, her journey like to escape addiction, and then to see it play out in this really creative science fiction world. It was just very Natasha, and I, was, I felt so blessed to be a part of her creative process, and um, I directed the first episode I directed was when she's in the elevator and she meets the other guy who is going to be the person who she can escape this terrible cycle with because she finds connection. So I also felt mm. it was such a cool story point that I got to come into her story, which was basically yeah. the moment that her character realizes there's someone else who's going through the same thing as her and how can they help each other escape this terrible cycle. And uh, so, and then I directed three episodes um, of their kind of friendship evolving. So it was really fun. And it was freezing cold. We were in New York City. Yes. Uh, and we were mostly in the East Village in the middle of the night. And I remember one time we were walking through Tompkins Square Park getting ready to shoot. And some junkie guy walked up to Natasha and was like, oh, I love you, man. And she was like, oh, thanks. And we continued walking by. And Natasha said, I don't know if I, he knows me from Orange is the New Black or if I lived with him in a cardboard box like 10 years ago. I don't know, because it could be either. Wow. <laughs> wow. Fascinating. So I, I just, it was, it was such a cool project to work on. And it was so many of her friends, like Brendan Sexton, she's been friends with since she was 20. He was the lead in... Um, uh, indie movies of the 90s with her. Um, so it was like a lot of friends coming back around. Um, so it really felt like a labor of love. And Elizabeth Ashley, too. I met the act 
I met the inspiration for the Elizabeth Ashley character, which was Natasha's real life family friend who was very kind to her. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was crazy because I was like, oh my God, Elizabeth Ashley is this woman. It's crazy. Do you know, did they ever meet? They did. They did? did? They? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I have one question before I think Stephen will do our final two. Yeah. If you're good with that. My question is, as a, this is TV directing, so what is it like coming in to direct? Because, like, having not, before I knew the business, how it's structured and how people do their jobs, I assumed there was one director for the entire series, every episode. This is the person. So you're and coming some shows in. There are. That's Maybe. that's happened before. But it's like coming in new. Are, are there have there been issues where it's like, well, this director did this, the person before you did this, or is it just kind of understood that like, no, this is my set today, <laughs> or what's that like? It's so weird to me. It's definitely kind of weird and awkward sometimes, um, but you just get used to it because you've done it so many times, so you just deal with the weird attitude that some people can have. Um, but it's I always say it's sort of like being invited to Christmas dinner because it is really important, and you're the guest of honor at Christmas dinner, but you don't know any of the family secrets of the family that you're the guest of honor at their weird <laughs> Christmas dinner. Yes. So it's like just your job to psychologically figure out what the family secrets are that no one's telling you like the dp's an asshole so sorry or um (laughs) you know that actor can't memorize a single line sorry or um the script is going to be given to you five minutes before you start shooting sorry Uh, So they don't tell you any of that stuff. So you find out once you get into their weird little world. And you also are in charge. So it's very bizarre because you also have to figure out what the power dynamics are. And um, so it's a lot of mental work. That's the mental, like, politics side of it, which is very heavy. And then the creative Mm -hmm. part of it is you actually have to deliver creatively where you have to shoot the show the way that they shoot the show but then you also have to bring a little bit of your own and expand in a way that they're going to love the way they shoot the show because you don't want to just be a clone of the way they always do it because then they're not going to respect you but you have to fit in but then you also want to like push it a little bit to bring bring something new bring something that they're like wow that's so cool yeah we're going to make that part of the show now So I also took a poetry class at Columbia and the poetry teacher would make us, okay, we're going to read Emily Dickinson poems. And then next week, your homework is you have to write a poem in the style of Emily Dickinson. And you actually have to... It's like a spec, spec poem. Yeah, literally. And so William Carlos Williams and Emily Dickinson. And it's kind of, I felt, sometimes I feel like directing TV is like that. Like watch the show what's the style of it and now kind of imitate that style but then make it your own and make it its own piece of art also brilliant so yeah it's obviously more fun to like direct a pilot or direct a movie because then there's nothing before you so you can do whatever the fuck you want Um, there we go with that again and then other people have to copy (laughs) you which is great 
Yeah, I mean, I guess that's another question I have earlier. You said, you know, if you could make indie films with big budgets the rest of your life, you're good. And you have also mentioned uh, in your past you were very anti-studio system for a while. Like, has that changed? Would you would you love to do a major motion picture? Or is that, like, not something on the table that you care to uh, care to sample? I would 100% do a major motion picture. I recently was up for Captain Marvel 2, and I thought, wow, if Ryan Coogler made such a cool movie like Black Panther, I could do something really cool like that with these like lady superheroes. So that was really intriguing to me. So I would love to have $100 million to make a weird sure. feminist anthem with superheroes. Why not? Why not? It's coming. I feel it. I feel it in my bones. So I'm open to the adventure of my career. I have no clue what's ahead of me, but I never say no. I'm always like, oh, that could be interesting. So I don't know. I'm, I, I don't have any set rules. I'm open to the world opening for my weirdo-ness. I love that. I love that. I love that, too. I love that, too, oh, Steven. I love that I for love everyone. That. I love that. Oh, God. I'm exhausted. Um, Steven, you have a question. You have, let's do our last two. Well, we have two questions we ask all of our guests. But enough about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think of me? (laughs) The first of which is, uh, what was your first impression of each of us? Well, um, my first impression of you, Steven, was funny, smart, and quick. And it was on this podcast because that's where I met you (laughs) and my first impression of Dana was um, well I heard about Dana from my girlfriend so my impression was through my girlfriend's stories which was the most amazing fabulous woman in the world with an incredible heart and uh, that's uh, right Hillary good job Hillary Hillary, I put the check in the mail. It'll be there. Thank you, Hill. Yeah, but she often would be like, oh, you really remind me of my friend Dana. Like, you're on another planet. I'm like, okay. That must be a really cool planet. (laughs) I'll take it. (laughs) I will take it. I will take it. Hi-ho! The second question. Uh, there are seven very well-known dwarves in history. If you were the eighth dwarf, what would your name be? Queerdo. 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 Queerdo dwarf. <laughs> I think that's perfect. What was Hillary's? I should have looked it up. I think she wanted to change it. She had two. I can't remember, though. Was hmm. it like Gitter Dunn dwarf? It was Probably. like... <laughs> So the other really funny thing is that, you know, I live in the Snow White house. The voice of Snow White is this woman, Adriana Casalotti, who, so Snow White was the original Disney movie, the first Disney movie of all time. And it was an animated movie. And the woman who sang all those songs, I'm wishing someday my prince will come. She was a very young Italian trained opera singer who lived in L.A., with Italian opera singer parents. And when she was in Snow White in the 40s, she made her money and she built a replica of the Snow White house 
in Hancock Park, which is the house that I have lived in for the last seven years. Um, and I live inside of her mind. And there is a wishing well out front that when she was 90 years old, she would stand in the wishing well and sing to all the people walking by who always come up to my house now and say like, oh, you know, when I was a kid, I would walk by this house and Snow White would be standing in the wishing well. And there's a little peephole in my bushes because every kid from the neighborhood walks and wants to peek in and see Snow White's well. So um, I live in the Snow White house. Will you send well, me a picture next time you're outside? <laughs> well, listeners, um, spoiler alert, this is our last episode that we will ever be recording. She's kidding. You're welcome for the died. three years of content. Um, that's incredible. I did not know that. I didn't either. I certainly knew, you know, the, the history of Snow White. I did not know she built a replica, and I did not know you live in it. And I bought it from With her gay best friend. Gay best friend. <laughs> who was a... And I've only heard this from people in the neighborhood, so it's I don't know what's true and what's not true. But I heard he was a hustler on Santa Monica Boulevard. And... 20 years younger than her and they became best friends and in the driveway of the home it says Adriana Casalotti Snow White in the cement and then it says my prince charming and it's his name and I bought the house from him because he was uh, she had died and he was going to move to Palm Springs and he sold the prince charming uh, he was a very beautiful gay man in his 70s uh, sold it to me. So they were they were their own queerdo little couple. I actually have nothing to say to that. That's the most ridiculous fact. Lights out. Lights out. Done. We're done here. Jamie, <laughs> I thought Hillary was the coolest person we would ever have on our podcast. Yeah. She still is, but you're a close second. Thanks, guys. Um, you... Uh, Jamie, thank you so thank much you for so spending much. part of your um, Sunday afternoon with us. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having your I guess podcast. it's Sunday morning there. Oh, it's early there. What time is it? Good God. You know, it's 1030. I'm ready to uh, take a little stroll through the Topanga Canyon before it burns. Aww. Well, don't let well, us keep I you. To, I hope to see you very soon in a socially distanced manner. I think it's going to happen. I'm soon relocating to New York, so um, I hope to meet you both in a socially distanced manner at some. If you need so anything, fun. ring both of us up. Thank you. What Thank you. you can dial one number and both phones ring. Yep. Um, it's such guys. a pleasure. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. such a treat. Really, such a treat. Um, on that note, bye. Bye. <laughs> As she just giggles. In the Room with Stephen and Dana is produced by Stephen Farizee and Dana Craig. Special thanks to Joel Wagoner for tinkling the ivories on our theme song. Hit him up at joelwagoner.com. We apologize and you're welcome. We'd also like to thank Jesse Weiner, W-I-E-N-E-R, for our jazzy original music sprinkled throughout each episode. You can find him at jessieweiner.com. Last but certainly not least, we'd like to thank Kevin Thomas Garcia for taking all of our ridiculous photos. You can find him online at ktgnyc.com. 
We are all over the internet on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at In The Room Pod. Follow us, like us, share us, pimp us out. And don't forget to subscribe to In The Room Podcast. We everywhere, so subscribe. And thank you so much for listening. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Gapone. This is Lin-Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.